So welcome to the Naked Dialogue podcast. Uh, today we have Michael Maze. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Maze, but that's that's as close as most people get. So I applaud you at that. Okay. Uh, all right. So how are you doing uh, tonight? Uh, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. No, I've been. Uh, I discovered your podcast through the episode that you did with Dr. Rick Strassman. And ever since I've been, you know, listening in, and there's so many interesting topics that you cover. And I gather that it's been three years that you've been doing this uh, podcasting now. Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite an interesting journey. And uh, yeah, we just hit about three years uh, last month. And, um, uh, you know, it started off as just being we just had family and friends and friends of friends and just anybody who had anything interesting to say about, um, you know, the purpose of life or, you know, the metaphysical aspects of life. Um, and then I want to say probably episode 40 or 50, uh, I met an author on Twitter, uh, Aaron Vu, who wrote this book called Spirit in the Sky. Um, correlating DMT to ancient Egyptian mythology and that that whole thing um, and then he recommended Dick Kahn uh, who wrote DMT in my occult mind and then from there we just started interviewing authors but it wasn't really the goal um, when we set out we weren't really we didn't have like a specific purpose we just wanted to talk about interesting things having to do with the mysteries of life yeah because I do see a lot of uh, amazing and very like focused um, I would say agendas or topics that you discuss in your podcast um, and what I find most more interesting is like you discuss a lot of uh, entheogenic compounds and their medicinal use uh, and I was just watching your uh, th third anniversary video uh, on the YouTube and I, I was really you know like the number of guests you've had on over the course of three years it's pretty mind-blowing um so I was going to ask you like how has the experience you know been like just talking about all these amazing esoteric topics you know at the end like how do you feel how much knowledge do you think you gain um so <clears throat> you know we've talked about this recently I kind of bring it up uh, on more of a lot of our recent episodes just because I do think it's interesting to see about you know where we started with this whole thing and where we are now um, when we started, I thought a lot more things were possible, um, a lot more mystical um, than they are. And um, what I've found through reading and research and um, interviewing these authors and researchers and just kind of talking with a bunch of different people and bouncing ideas off of people and just listening to the top people in each of these fields, um, I've come to the conclusion that there is a bunch of mystery out there. There is metaphysical things, uh, you know, um, things we can't explain, you know, whether it be people, you know, in, in the military seeing these crazy UFOs, uh, these Tic Tacs or these flying, you know, discs or um, people seeing DMT entities or psychedelic entities, Um near-death experiences, you know, all these altered states of consciousness. Um, I found a lot of these 
um, th weird things that are happening are correlated to altered states of consciousness. Now, there are people that experience these things in day-to-day -day consciousness, but I think those are super rare compared to, uh, like I mentioned, all those other ones. So um, I would say when I first started, I thought that those other things were possible maybe in day-to-day -day consciousness, but from further research, I don't really think that it happens all too um, often so um, but I would say where my philosophies have shifted now is I think that a lot of these metaphysical concepts and metaphysics uh, are just things that science hasn't been able to explain yet so I, I mean that's obviously the definition of it but um, a lot of these weird things that people are talking about you know in all these fringe and esoteric uh, communities I think are things that we'll find out later there is an explanation for it. There, it is an, it's something anecdotal in terms of it's a personal experience thing that a lot of different people experience. But I think we'll figure out later that there is an explanation for it. And, and But in no way, there's, no, there's never going to be an end to this whole thing. It's just an ever-evolving picture if the universe is infinite. Um, but we're here for a finite amount of time. Um, you know, nobody's going to have all the answers. And so I never put all, I, when I started, I used to latch on to certain ideas and researchers and things like that. And now I just kind of don't put any of my eggs in any baskets. I kind of just keep evolving with, you know, each day, I guess my, my philosophies change even every day to some extent. Well, I find it very interesting that some of the DMT entities that people see in their personal conscious experiences uh they match sometimes you when you read reports of a lot of people doing dmt but seeing somewhat the same entities so some people would see egyptian figures pharaohs um ancient egyptian pharaohs would be a better term and some people would describe them literally looking like a with an alien face the modern alien face so it's definitely interesting to me like what have you made out do you think there's a correlation um yeah so i've seen i've seen entities on other psychedelics i've actually never done dmt i look into dmt and we interview a lot of people regarding dmt because it's produced in the body um it's an endogenous compound so um that aspect of it i find super fascinating um and there's been some studies to look into i mean there's a, actually a uh, study they did at the University of Michigan, I think it was like a year ago or two years ago, where they induced uh, mice into cardiac arrest and found that DMT is produced in their brain and not just specifically their pineal gland. So um, stuff like that's very fascinating to me because could this be some sort of um, component or mechanism of the near-death experience, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, you're right. A lot of people do see similar entities on dmt these machine elves jesters um you know gray alien archetypes um you know there's you know ayahuasca there's a lot of uh, people see pachamama or like mother earth or they see um, uh, rainbow serpents you know things of that nature so there are these like archetypes that do occur in the psychedelic experience um and I, it's hard to tell um, the, the entities I've encountered whether it felt external, but it could totally be 
internal um, at the same time. So that's what I was saying about like never putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm not going to um, say for sure because I don't know. Um, but I can tell you that in those realms, you feel like it's more real than real. So that leads some people to believe that uh, these entities are external or they are some sort of maybe manifested energy that's beyond our perception of day-to-day -day consciousness. Sure, even I think, I mean, there's, there's two ways it could be possible. I feel like if it, if it is an external thing, then it has to have certain, you know, physical space that it occupies. That means some kind of, you know, dimension, some uh, esoteric, like I would say esoteric because it's metaphysical at this point. Right. Well, I would say, you know, metaphysical, physical space it has to occupy. But if it's an internal thing and we still see a lot of people having the same experiences and it's worth looking into like there's been a lot of studies as you mentioned the rat one uh, with the pineal gland in the brain and uh, i've heard people say that it's inconclusive because there's some reports that show there's some amount of dmt in the brain other reports don't show that which is right. very puzzling yeah because it is tight we're talking you know tiny amounts um and I think in the human body, they've detected it in um, the lungs. Um, I want to say, um, you know, I don't, the jury was still obviously out on the whole human brain thing. I don't know how they would even figure that out because you, you know, the person has to be obviously alive and experiencing this thing and have those endogenous compounds going at the time. So I don't know how they would figure that out if they were to do that, but um yeah even uh rick strassman when he was on he was talking about you know like there there was obviously some correlations to maybe possibly an explanation for people that are schizophrenic like maybe some of the visual hallucinations or um, some of that aspect of it could be tied to some sort of endogenous chemical thing going on maybe even correlated to dmt but they a lot of the year analysis i think prove that that was not the case or at least it was inconclusive or something so um but yeah i mean there, it, with all these things again this is all still science and science you know is only as good as the present day of whatever the paradigm is because it's always going to be evolving too things that we knew a hundred years ago have long been forgotten or evolved into something else or renamed or uh, there's more scope to the whole scenario. So same thing with psychedelic research. I mean, it's no different just because it's psychedelics and it's an anecdotal experience. It's still subject to the same, you know, errors and flaws of scientific research as anything else. True. Like as opposed to, I would say, you know, esoteric entities, aliens are on the other, you know, spectrum because they have to have a physical you know, external reality of their own. So what do you think about like just talking to all these guests you've had on all over the years? Have you had any revelations or any conclusive thoughts about alien theories and UFOs? Okay, um, so this is an interesting one. Um, I, on Twitter, there's this, it's called UFO Twitter, and uh, there's a, a lot of daily activity. You get a lot of back and forth. 
uh, new, you know, there's a lot of people getting Freedom of Information Act information and declassified material and they put it out there and, hey, look at this. And they try and make connections and correlations and things like that. Um, at the same time, uh, there's a lot of specu speculative stuff too. And then there's also a lot of crazy stuff. So you kind of have to know what's what, I guess, a little bit or spend a little bit of time looking at it so you kind of know what's BS and what's possible or whatever the case may be. Um, from my personal experience, again, I think this is all related to consciousness. Um, I'm not saying there wouldn't be a universe if there wasn't a conscious entity or a human, one human being or whatever. Uh, but I would say that a lot of these things that we experience are via consciousness um, or some, you know, these could be errors too. Um, I, 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 I believe in these mysteries and I believe that there's more to life, but at the same time, I think you have to be open to the idea that we're like a flawed or like a, a being that's constantly hallucinating. I know Anil's, uh Seth, I think is his name, did a TED talk about how we're always hallucinating um, and that's just our perception of the the universe at this moment kind of thing so um, I, I don't necessarily believe that and he's a pretty um, dogmatic materialist so I'm not necessarily all about that either um, but like I like to balance everything and I think that I guess that's what I've learned the most through all this but I do want to point something out you were talking about metaphysical realms and um these dimensions and stuff and um as far as the universe goes from like watching you know all these scientists talk to these debates that you see you know and listening to podcasts nothing is for sure settled i mean yeah the big bangs the most likely explanation for the but there's the big bounce there's all these uh, uh you know multiverse there's all these other theories that maybe it happened a different way so as, as empirical as science pretends to be sometimes even string theory it should actually be called string hypothesis because it's not really a theory yet right so um stuff like that i guess is where um i bring into question the whole dimensions thing and i don't see why we couldn't i mean if you believe let's say string hypothesis or string theory um you'd believe that there's at least what 11 dimensions i think is what um brings into the equation so you know four of those or three of those are spatial and then one of those would be time and then there's these other ones that collapse via this Kalibi U manifold thing and it gets kind of crazy but it's like what are these extra dimensions you know do these have to do with the mind or consciousness is this something that can be perceived is there more spatial dimensions that we aren't aware of as well you know like these are things that I think about regularly um, and I don't think Again, you can listen to all the top scientists and they all kind of have different opinions and they all think they're right. So you kind of just have to listen to them all and see what you believe. True. I feel like there's a lot of hypotheses, but not enough consensus, if anything, within the scientific community, especially about string theory that you mentioned. Because as far as I remember reading it, there's three different string theories, apparently, with 11 dimensions, 12 dimensions. Yeah. And there's one with 26 basonic dimensions. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, uh, you know, like crazy just to even visualize if, if those are the dimensions, you know. But uh, I've read about this correlation between spiritual dimensions uh, within meditative states that people have um, all these different chakras. 
And so they would correlate all these different chakras with the 11 dimension theory, which is like mixing two different worlds. You're taking spirituality and you're taking quantum physical worlds and you're mixing them. So I definitely see a correlation there. So it kind of makes me wonder if, if, if there was to be, you know, different spatial dimensions that we also see in popular culture now, like all these animated um, series like Rick and Morty talked about, you know, all these different dimensions. They even right. had an episode where they showed, you know, how, how physical realities are very close, like they're packed together. So it's almost like you're looking at a geometrical visual, but all the, you know, all its lines and everything are basically two different realities colliding which is, you know, again, like a science, popular science theory uh, or conspiracy, who knows, but it definitely makes you think whether, you know, these dimensions, if they were to exist, how do they exist? Do they exist in a very inner, you know, it's, it's again, the question of dualism, it's like mind and body. So it's, is it right. an internal thing or it's, it's an actual physical thing, which is right. very interesting. So even I think about these things a lot. And again, you know, there's no conclusive, um, thought that comes out of it because these are way two different, you know, realms. Uh, but UFOs seem like a way, you know, just interesting thing because people would see them quite often. And then in April, Pentagon, you know, kind of announced that there is right. these things exist, which again, you know, blows up, you know, the physical question. If it kind of opens, you know, we're definitely going to have physical dimensions. So have you thought about the whole Pentagon thing? And Yeah, so, I mean, um, we've had Sean Cahill, who was stationed on the USS Princeton and witnessed a part of the uh, Tic Tac UFO incident, and you have David Fravor's account, um, and you have all these um, credible people going on the record with all these different sightings. Um, and, yeah, you're right. They came out with the three videos, the Go Fast, the Gimbal, um, and the uh, Tic Tac, and um, all of those videos uh, are from the FLIR, um, which is the forward-looking infrared systems that are on the uh, our fighter jets, and it's the most advanced systems we have. I mean, maybe they have some sort of experimental stuff, obviously, that they're not showing or talking about or whatever, but that's what's on our best stuff. Usually, that's, that's in operation. Um, and these are caught on those videos now some people say that some of them are doctored a little bit you know to, to show truly what's there some you know you have skeptics too that are claiming that it's not really anything you have like mick west who's a pretty intense skeptic um and then you have like michael Shermer and all these people um, I would say the skeptics, my problem with that is they're they're coming from a place of skepticism. They're coming into it to debunk it. They're not looking at it truly objective. And then when you do stuff like that, you have to question that person's uh, cognitive and confirmation bias because you're not really looking at it from, uh, you know, you're not looking at the evidence of both sides. He, tr he, he will, like, go back and forth. Mick West, you know, he's pretty active on Twitter and stuff. He'll go back and forth with you, but you're not going to change his mind. He's that type of a person. doesn't matter. You could show him, you know, you could land a UFO on his front lawn. He might bring into question, you know, <laughs> you know what's going on here. So uh, you have that aspect of it. I will say that everything I've seen is pretty compelling that something's happening. Um, and even in terms, you were talking about dimensions, you know, there's this 
turn of the century book called Flatland, or it's like Flatland, the love story by Edwin A. Abbott, I believe is his name. And um, Flatland talks about how, like, if you lived in, uh, you know, one dimension, you'd see, you know, just a line and then you go two dimensions and, you know, you, it goes through the thing of like what you could see from each dimension from that perspective. Uh, so maybe UFOs are something where we're not seeing the full picture. We're only seeing, um, you know, the, the four dimension or three dimensional space, you know, and some people even argue whether time is the fourth dimension or not. So I think, um, I don't know, time's a weird thing to think about. So true, definitely. I mean, time as a concept itself, like giving it a dimension of its own is kind of acknowledging that it has a certain, you know, physical reality to it, which makes it even more complex to understand because it's it's time, it's us going forward and us leaving a certain segment behind of, of time itself. So it's, it's a very tricky, um, I would say, just, you know, concept at this point. With, like relating it to dimension, I feel like uh, all these physicists do that a lot. They talk about time as a dimension, but whenever I read it, it just doesn't make, you know, that much sense to me because, right. yeah, like time is... is as a concept, being a dimension is very puzzling. But with UFOs, I feel like, you know, it's just so different because like you see all these people informing that they have sighted a UFO, what they see as a right. flying object, disc-like. And then we see the reports by Pentagon. And also like recently there was a Israeli scientist. I don't know if you heard about this, but he talked about, I think one from one of the you know, Trump administrative, um, I guess, broadcast or whatever, he said that, you know, these things exist and Trump knows about it and something like that, which was very puzzling to me again. Yeah, within the UFO community, that was kind of like some of that nonsense I was talking about. I'm not saying I don't believe that we know more than, or like our governments know more than the people obviously they do they have all the technology they have all the radars they know you know they have all the uh different uh, you know you name it whatever organization private organization security organization they have all these organizations so um yeah they they know more i don't think though this idea that there's some sort of galactic federation out there and uh, there's the universe is just teeming with these aliens and they're waiting for our us to you know like that whole narrative i'm not necessarily saying i don't believe it but firm that there are you know i guess we should say this i'm not convinced that ufos are actually being um piloted by like an alien or an extraterrestrial i'm not saying that that's not a possibility um, but you have to look into the possibility that these things could be von Neumann probes. Von Neumann probes is this idea, theory that um, once you get to a certain point and you can make technology that makes technology, it would self-replicate, you know, and start spreading out through the universe. So there could be some alien civilization that has gotten so technologically advanced that they've created these drones and this technology that can self-replicate and then spread out through the universe monitoring and sending probes like how we send stuff all throughout the uh, solar system to look at these other planets it could be something far more advanced than that so 
Um, I'm not so convinced that there's actual aliens. I, I, you know, I've the gray archetypes a whole different thing. I think that's very consciousness related. These things could be, um, you know, uh, connecting with us telepathically too, uh, extraterrestrials if they exist, based on people that feel like they've been abducted or um, people that see these things in altered states on psychedelics or whatever. They feel like some sort of telepathic communication. There's even um, Dr. Andrew Gallimore, who is a, uh, a computation or a, yeah, a computational neurobiologist, I believe, and we have had him on the show. He wrote this book called Alien Information Theory that in the DMT realm, you are communicating with some sort of alien intelligence via quantum entanglement or something like that. So um, I don't, I don't know. I think that I, from what I hear from people that claim to be in the know um there is both consciousness related stuff going on dimensional stuff and also physical things and i actually don't see why that couldn't be the case because the universe is so big and the possibility for life i think lex freedom just did some modern calculation of uh, the Drake equation, which is the equation of how much, you know, or how the, all the possibilities of life in the universe. He did like an updated version and it's like 1.9%, which is like billions and billions and billions of possibilities because the universe is so infinite. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, I think something's happening. Um, it could be this energy that's dangling this carrot for you know, humans or other civilizations too. It could be this thing bringing us along. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's just such a confusing topic and so many different stories and anecdotes. And there are a little, you know, there are a lot of people out there that fake and lie and that kind of stuff too. So you kind of have to be discerning at what you're looking at in terms of data. But when you have all the military stuff and those videos, it's hard really, you know, not to pay attention to that at least. Sure, I feel like it, it is the very fascinations that humans have because of having such curious minds that we have, is that we feel like there has to be something more to then this particular existence that we have. So that's what also something that you know we can trace back with mythologies and stuff, that you know in ancient tribal uh, texts and whatever you know they would say that certain demons exist or certain. Um, creatures exist like lycanthropes like werewolves or something like that and so now these things are so integrated in our popular culture that it makes us even more curious as to okay if you know maybe these things exist maybe they don't which they obviously don't because they're coming from mythologies but aliens could be something which is very much possible when you, when we put it in that thought experiment that something because because our universe is so large and because we you know discover something new every day there might be a possibility that there's a sentience out there and so i feel like it's definitely the human curious fascination fascinating minds that we have that we're always in in some way or the other we're always some kind of skeptic if you know just skeptic towards whatever our immediate external reality is so I feel like that's where the fascination comes from. But I feel like you've done really good episodes on ancient mythologies and like so even sometimes how they connect to different psychoactive compounds. What's your experience been with that? Um, lately, I mean, I've been on this kick, I think, 
psychedelics might be at the root of most metaphysical thinking or at least the initiation of it um uh, you have to think like one was the first person to look up in the sky and ponder, you know, the existence in com- comparison to, you know, and that that's after knowing a lot more stuff out there, you know, because we think about humans as like, oh, we've always known those are stars up in the, the sky. But again, you mentioned ancient people and um, obviously without sending rockets and probes and stuff into space, you wouldn't know exactly what's going on up there. So you create the story. Um, just like right now, we're creating a story via science and observation of what we think is going on. And this is our current story or paradigm. But I find the ancient stuff fascinating in the sense that even go back to like the pre-Socratics and ancient Greece and you have, um, you know, Parmenides and, uh, Thales and and Aximander and all these great thinkers like early on these and and they're creating natural science what we know as physical science today Um, but even some of those thinkers were still thinking metaphysically in the sense that like they were pondering um, the purpose you know the teleology or the uh, you know, our being, ontology, and, you know, the, what do we truly know, epistemology. And I think that um, that kind of thinking in the ancient world was brought on by something. And they had the Eleusinian mysteries, which we know now there's hard physical evidence uh, that they were consuming psychoactive compounds via spiked wine. And, uh, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries, they had this potion or drink or whatever you want to call it, called uh, Kekian. And uh, some people, for a long time, it was just thought it was just like some barley water and mint mixture, and uh, there was nothing to it. But now they have, hard, like I said, hard evidence of ergot, which is um, a wheat fungus, uh, claviceps purpea, and it's the precursor to LSD. Now, if you were to just take that alone, um, it has some pretty negative neurological effects and actually people you know can cause seizures and things like that but once that's synthesized um you know it becomes it could become more psychoactive without those components so like it was theorized that they found a way to suck all those negative alkaloids out of it and um, do it that way there's also been proof of um, detura which is a powerful psychoactive compound um, and a lot of the stuff's found in the spiked wine and Greece and Pompeii and all these ancient uh, cities but yeah the Eleusinian mysteries went on for 2,000 years Plato went uh, Pythagoras you know any great thinker you had to go there was two mysteries there was the lesser mysteries which happened in spring and then there was the greater mysteries which happened in fall um, and fall and it has to do with the uh, mythology surrounding um, uh, Demeter and Persephone and Persephone being taken into the underworld with, you know, Hades. And then uh, and then they, they eventually get her out, but she's got to go back a certain amount of time every year. Um, if people aren't familiar with the, the Greek mythology, they can look it up. But um, they think that these festivals were correlated to that in terms of... Um, you know, the the fall was the harvest, and that's when, you know, they were probably producing the psychoactive compound, and the people had to fast leading up to it, and they all congregated in this place called the uh, Telesterion, 
And um, yes, a lot of, if you read like what Plato said and like all these different people, it's clear something more was going on. That, you know, a lot of them claimed it, it feels like dying or I know what it's like to die kind of a thing or I'm not scared of death. Um, so <clears throat> that was, I, I believe, the lost ancient um, Western. Like that's that's what we were in the Western world or modern world supposed to maybe inherit as our psychedelic traditions that we never, it never got passed on because uh, of the later Roman empire. And then you've got the Visigoths that come in and destroy Eleusis. Um, but yeah, I, th I thought that that would probably be, you know, where we at, but now we have science. So science is probably the closest thing or maybe concert culture or, you know, music culture kind of a thing. Uh, but yeah, you know, the ancient world you have, uh, we've had Tom Lane on the podcast a lot, who's very well read in the Mesoamerican stuff. He's done sacred mushroom rituals with Maria Sabina, who's um, probably one of the biggest names in terms of uh, impact on like the psilocybin community. And that's where Gordon Lawson was introduced to the mushroom and then he introduced it to the modern world. I'm trying to think as far as the ancient tradition, I mean, Soma, Soma, you know, comes from uh, the split between the uh, Indo-Iranian uh, uh, migrations. And then you have, uh, you get the Avesta on one part of the migration, which has Homa. And then you have the other part, which went to India. Um, and uh, those people wrote the Rig Veda and you get Soma. So those are the two correlating you know they're very similar homa and soma and they come both from the indo-european migrations around the black sea the top of the black sea there um yeah i mean i look i, I love talking about all this stuff i love looking into it i think that um, a lot of these ancient psychedelic traditions are at the root of again to bring back to my point uh metaphysics and this idea of a god or a creator or there's something more or there, you know, we're missing something or there's like purpose, you know, or self-awareness to, to another level. True. Like, uh, when you mentioned spiked wine and immediately in my head, you know, I remembered Soma that you talked about because there's been a lot of speculations within both the theological community and, you know, the scientific or psychedelic community that maybe Soma was, either, you know, Hawaiian seeds or baby Woodrow seeds or some kind of psychoactive yeah. substance in general. And so, you know, whenever I see in Christian theories about the wine that Jesus Christ was drinking, you know, it just comes into my mind, you know, what if it was also some, you know, sorry, because it's already psychoactive when we see it already has ethanol alcohol. So we can, right. you know, categorize it as that. So there's definitely been a prevalence of these compounds, even in, you know, these popular religions that we have today, and then also in paganistic or, you know, tribalistic communities that we see, you know, Native Indians and everything. So it definitely sparks an interest into, or if these compounds existed, then what was their, you know, use as to, you know, because we hear also, I think in the Aztec community, in the Aztec civilization that they used to drink some kind of substance and then you know they would kill all these people for the sacrifice or whatever so we also see a prevalence there so it's kind of mind-boggling you know that we see such huge 
influence. Yeah. So that I'll speak to that actually. Um, I know Graham Hancock brings that up and he's brought it up a lot about the Mayans and then performing these, um, you know, ritual killings or whatever. Uh, Tom Lane, who the author I mentioned claims that that's not true. They did not do this. Um, and that that would that might go back to an earlier time, and I don't even know if psychedelics were involved with that. That might be a completely separate aspect of their culture. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but from talking to the people I know, um, it seems to be not as likely as is what people think about there. And there's actually we did an episode um, where Tom took us through some of the uh, mushroom codices, the ancient mushroom codices from. Um, the ancient Mesoamerican people from, you know, uh, the, the, you know, Mexico, ancient Mexico, uh, regions. Um, but so I would say that, 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 that's an interesting, that whole conversation. I don't know. I'd like to see more stuff. I have to look into it more. I have looked at stuff, but I haven't seen anything that's like definitive. They did this or they didn't do this. Um, but I will say that anybody that's done psilocybin or mushrooms, you don't, I, I mean, I would think that it would have the opposite effect of like wanting to be um, aggressive or do something along those lines. And just, that's just my opinion. I, you know, I'm, yeah, it gives you the opposite thoughts. You want to be a better person. You want to get your shit together. You want to, um, you know, make the world better kind of a thing. So um, if that did happen, it might've been some sort of like, you know, um, sub cult or sub, um, thing that was going on at that time. I think that also when you look at like, um, Quetzalcoatl, um, and Viracocha and all these like ancient Aztec and Incan gods and, uh, Contiki, um, these gods are the sun gods. And then, um, but they also are supposedly brought, um, animal husbandry, civilization, um, you know, uh, agriculture. And then the, supposedly these gods taught them how, you know, instead of um, sacrificing people to sacrifice flowers and things of that nature. So I don't know if that maybe, maybe there was a transition at one point where they went from sacrificing people to sacrificing plants and maybe those plants were psychedelics. I don't know. That's just completely speculation off the cuff right now. But um in terms of these compounds and their their effects on human beings, I think that they've had a large effect on human beings since, like I said, the evolution of our consciousness. They might have even had a hand at some point. You know, maybe, you know, even if you don't believe in, you know, don't believe in the stoned ape theory, or maybe even it's, it's a possibility that, at very least, uh, maybe psychedelics had a hand in helping us create morality um, in terms of. Like I said, when you use these compounds, you want to be a better person. You want to, you know, love your neighbor or, you know, be peaceful, kind, you know, that kind of a thing. So, I, you know, I don't know, again, if that's the case, but that's just uh, a thought that I've had on that. But, yeah, I don't, I, uh, I think that, psych, again, psychedelics are at the root of a lot of these ancient traditions and thoughts. And, again, you've got Soma and Homa and uh, you know, uh, Kekian and I mean, you name it, even, uh, yeah.
There's all, all sorts of psilocybin mushrooms depicted in the you know ancient uh, Aztec and Mesoamerican codices. True, like I've been ha like I've been thinking these days about you know if psychedelics could have you know vast effects because I feel like you know it largely depends on what kind of mental state you're in when you consume these substances. So one theory could be that maybe these peoples were already ideologically, you know, because they're cultists in a way, they were already, you know, psychologically aligned to think a certain way. And then the psychedelic heightened that particular thought or, you know, as we see with mental states. So, uh, I mean, if you've seen, you know, what, what has happened with the Capitol riots, that there was a guy with a horn that stormed mm. the Capitol. And then he said, that he's a Q shaman, which was one of the most weirdest things that you would see coming out of, you know, in that context, because we definitely see psychedelics in a very, you know, spiritual, moral glow. And so when something like this happens, it makes you question whether, you know, it could be delegitimized because of these people, you know, using it for their own ideological purposes. So what he said on the thing was that he's a Q shaman and then he can perceive different dimensions and whatnot, and which was very interesting to me. So I saw the entire interview that he did in that context because I, fe I felt like I had to see where this was coming from, from him. And just watching the entire video, I just saw a lot of conspiratorial stuff that he was saying about, you know, all these people, you know, all these military people being involved in all these cults or killing people or whatever. And which was very, you know, and then you see him saying that I'm a Q shaman, which was, you know, again, delegitimizing, you know, most of the good and probably largely good aspects of psychedelics. So that was very you know, disturbing to see, if anything. Oh, 100%. Um, I think that your point is a point that I make regular, regularly in terms of psychedelics in which that they are a placebo to some extent. So whatever you're researching, whatever you're into at the time, um, they're just going to further that in the experience. Meaning that like, if you're, you know, you're, uh, really into quantum physics and you, uh, have been studying and you're all about quantum physics and then you take a psychedelic and you have a crazy experience. Well, if you're meditating, you might start to think about quantum physics in a different way or expand your mind and think about the universe and spatial realms and um, how things work and you know try and get to the minute level you know minutia level um them you know it, again these things act as kind of like a placebo so whatever you're looking into at the time or whatever it might like you said heighten or bring that out more um now obviously there's a lot of nonsense out there right now there's a lot of uh, misinformation, people listening to the wrong people, uh, people that read a headline and, and, you know, run with it or believe all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, I think that the psychedelic thing when it comes to this, yeah, that this definitely gives it um, not like a bad name, but it's just like it's already tough enough as it is. These are supposed to be plants that help people. And then to have somebody do something like that and um, bring negative or terrible attention to it, um, I don't think it helps the cause. But I, don't, I think that we're at a point now where um, it can withstand it, too. You know, there's enough interest in psychedelics where 
something like that isn't going to reverse it like it did in like the 50s or the 60s and like the paranoia and stuff like that. I think this guy was obviously, he needs help. He's had some sort of issues and uh, believes a lot of nonsense. So I think that he was just, these were just reflecting his crazy stuff that he was thinking at the time and, and that whole thing. So um, look, you know, we're... <laughs> We're definitely living toward, you know, in some sort of, uh, it feels like a simulation at this point with all the crazy shit that's going on out there. I'm not going to lie. Um, and for me, I feel like an alien watching sometimes. I'm like, this is absolutely absurd that people think this way or people believe these things. I just, I'm so shocked that it takes two seconds to go on the internet. Everybody's got a phone every, or a computer or whatever. Anybody can look anything up. All you have to do is cross-reference things. And, um seems like there's a lot of people out there <laughs> not cross-referencing not double checking not really researching anything they're hearing a couple things or maybe they're talking to somebody they trust or know and that person's giving them wrong information or misinformation or uh, maybe there's just a lot of vulnerable people I think right now too that's another possibility um, I think that religion's kind of um on its way out in some cultures and in some, you know, sections and things like that. So I think that the God void is, um, it's almost like power in a vacuum for ideas. So if somebody doesn't believe in some sort of higher power anymore, they're going to look towards something else. And I think whether, um, it's crazy conspiracies or this or that, I think that people, um, need something higher or like a higher calling. I mean, even Socrates pointed to that, uh, Socrates and Plato, um, that it becomes, society becomes dangerous when there's no higher power or higher belief. And that's why Plato was warning everybody about the, um, the sophists all the way back then, which sophists, if people don't know what sophists are, they're people that would like teach or, um, instruct for payment, um, but they wouldn't teach truth. They would just teach you how to win arguments or like, let's say they would teach this king or rich guy's kid how to, you know, be a great debater or whatever. But that person would be debating for truth. They just want to win the argument. So, and that's what you would call, um, heuristic rhetoric. Um, and then you see it all over the internet today where people are just arguing to argue just to win an argument. They're not actually trying to come to some sort of conclusion. Um, but yeah, so about the whole psychedelic thing and yeah, I mean, look, um, there's good, there's crazy people out there. There's people that need help. I mean, I've had my own mental health issues in the past and sometimes things get dark and you have to work it out. You have to talk to somebody, you have to figure it out, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or seeing a therapist or certain medications, whatever the case may be. I don't know what the answer is for everybody's different. Everybody has their own issues, but, um, you know, through our podcast, at least, uh, we've talked about a lot of mental health stuff and trying to bring people together as opposed to trying to divide people or tear people apart, which is what you see a lot of out there. Um, and I think that uh, that's why you're seeing a lot of the stuff that you're seeing. And to be honest with you, um, nobody's trying to uh, come together anymore. It's all about uh, winning an argument or winning a debate or pulling one over on somebody else and... I think, yeah, it's scary out there right now on top of, obviously, you know, the virus and everything, so. True, I feel like it's the whole, you know, mixing ideologies with, you know, compounds that kind of delegitimizes, you know, 
the ongoing research or the ongoing legalization process because if people or even just like a general population is seeing these you know narratives on the tv about you know certain people taking psychedelics and you know questioning everything to a point that everything is a conspiracy so that becomes a problem and then you mentioned the sophists you know the art of persuasion that comes from them you know in a way you can say that you know these people at least, you know, whoever these Q shaman people are, are using, you know, art of persuasion and they're using it with compounds. And then they're, you know, telling that if you use certain compounds, you can, you know, see these vibrations that tell you that everything's basically a conspiracy in the end, which makes them diluted to a certain extent. And then that, you know, delegitimizes the whole legalization process. Because now we see, you know, a very great force, a very good force towards, you know, legalizing, you know, certain compounds, at least, if not all. Like, what do you think about the legalization? Do you think legalizing all drugs, which is a, a system both in Portugal and now I think in Oregon, that, you know, you deal, you just legalize everything and then the addiction rates go all the way down, which is very, you know, if you see it's a psychical thing there. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, I would just say, well, obviously, um, again, what happened was disgusting and terrible and that guy should be held accountable. And I don't think that, um, I don't think he represents the psychedelic community at all. I don't, you know, I don't look at it like that at all. So I don't think that anybody in the psychedelic community is necessarily worried about it because there's real research without crazy conspiracies and nonsense and things like that. So that put aside, I think that when you look at just the legalization aspect of things, I think, yeah, I, th I see it going the way that cannabis has kind of gone in terms of... Um, you will see some states passing some things, which you see now, Oregon and uh, Colorado and California and, um, you know, some of the uh, indigenous peoples and, you know, you got certain stuff like that. Um, but I think that when it comes to like federal legalization, we don't even have that for cannabis yet. So I think that, um, if that were to happen, which they are talking about, it, and I think that it probably should happen. I mean, marijuana is recreationally legal where I live, um, and I think it should be that way. It's it's a very potent medicine that I think is um, it's gonna probably you're gonna probably see a lot more thinking for a long time regarding cannabis. And I know even where you are out in Israel, they're doing a lot of research there too. Um, I think when, it, when you look at that, so that's the model, I think that psychedelics could go off of. However, I think that you see a lot more psychic, actual psychedelic research going on now than I do actual marijuana studies, which is interesting. Um, when you see these pub, uh, papers published, you see a lot of psilocybin, a lot of LSD studies, um, having to do with addiction and, um, Look, I mean, I've talked about it a million times on my show. I had severe debilitating OCD, and um, I've always had a relationship with psilocybin even since I was younger in high school. It's just something, you know, I've always been interested in these other realms and metaphysical things and stuff like that. So it was never like, oh, I'm going to just take these drugs kind of thing. It was, I've always been, like, fascinated with, like, altering my state of mind. 
Um, so I've had that relationship. So when I was came down, you know, I guess it's not coming down. It's like a kind of a gradual process of, you know, developing OCD. But uh, in that process, um, it became very bad at one point. And at that point, I hadn't really been using cannabis or uh, psychedelics. Um, and then I took a large dose of psilocybin and that like reset my brain. And I actually didn't even think about OCD for like the six hour experience that I had for the first time that had been for a while. I hadn't done it since I was a little bit younger. Um, and then from there, uh, it's just, you know, I look at it as like an occasion, like medicine, like an occasional reset. So I think that it obviously helps therapeutically. Um, but again, these silver bullets either these aren't magical integrate cbt with psilocybin so cbt is cognitive behavioral therapy with psilocybin um and then also understand my mind understand how i think my emotions why do i feel what i feel when i feel this way and like what's going on what's at the root of these um issues so uh again it's these i think that what it comes down to is if you're interested enough in something or you're willing to look into something, it's going to serve you far better, whether it's these psychedelics, like if you have any anxiety stuff, if you really look into these things and you talk to a lot of people and you research them, I think I have a better understanding than most because we do like a podcast on this stuff too. So I'm always researching and reading scientific papers on top of understanding my own mind and having my own experiences. So it's kind of this multifaceted thing. I think that if it's helped me and I was kind of treatment resistant and like drug resistant to all the conventional stuff that had, you know, for years, I'm talking like 10 years, I tried a bunch of different things. Um, so if that's the case, um, I know there's a lot of other people that I've talked to that have had similar experiences and they're just getting to phase three with the PTSD or through phase three with the PTSD and MDMA at maps. And um, I think even, I think it, two of the the parts of that study actually were done in Israel as well, if I'm not mistaken. So Israel's actually kind of, along with the United States and Canada, kind of up there with the cannabis and the psychedelic research as well. Yeah, that's very true. We have um, like a headquarters sort of, of maps here too. And they're doing a lot of studies, I think mostly concentrating on PTSD because PTSD is something very, you know, I wouldn't say popular, but popular here because people... Here, um, you know, as soon as you turn 18, you're supposed to go. If you're like Israeli, you have to go to the army and serve for two years. It's like a compulsory rule. So mm -hmm. if you look at it that way, half of, not even half, I would say, you know, it's safe to say 90% of this country has been in a, you know, armed situation or a military situation. And so they, you know, get PTSD from there. And so how do we treat PTSD? So that now they're looking into, you know, all these different compounds. I think there's a LST study, there's a cannabis study, there's a psilocybin study uh, going on here, and they're looking at whether these compounds could help them. And I think they can, and they have, you know, larger potential, if anything, to make people realize about how, you know, because I feel like, you know, the main point that we get out of any psychedelic experience is that we have a better appreciation for the reality that we see or appreciation towards existence or life itself. So, you know, it gives, I feel like there's a very good, you know, chance that if this was supposed, if this gets, you know, through all the different phases of trials and, you know, 
now we have therapeutic centers where you could go and you know ask them that I want to do a PTSD three month uh, psychoanalytic you know treatment, and I think that would be possible if you know phase three trials are done, which is very good. But you know I've also heard about you know these substances, these psychoactive substances that people substitute in order to kick off other addictions. So we've heard about kratom and or kratom. Uh, in a, mm-hmm. yeah. So how that compound is, you know, very useful in kicking out opioid addictions, but it also has uh, kratom in its own, you know, molecular structure it is sort of, you know, related to the opioid family in a way. So it's very, you know, interesting to see how people also use ibogaine to, you know, kick off uh, things. And there's also a drink called kava. So we have all these different, you know, substitutes, which is very interesting because it's like you take one psychoactive substance to kick off the other, which is very bizarre. But then we also see, you know, these studies of where people have taken mushrooms and they've stopped smoking. You know, these people have been, you know, really active smokers for let's say 20 years and now they have one psychedelic experience and now they stop all of a sudden, which is very interesting because then it's, you know, a question of, if you know it is in any way ethical to take one psychoactive substance to kick off other because you know when you go to these rehab institutions they would not advise it at least from what i've read on the web that they never advise kratom to kick off um you know opioid addictions even though it's you know largely helpful which is something that i've been thinking about i don't know what you think about these things but it's very bizarre to Um, me yeah i mean look i think Different things work for different people, just like how I was resistant to a lot of conventional treatments and psilocybin worked for me. I had a really good relationship with psilocybin even since I was younger. So um, I think it's about like what you're familiar with to some extent, but it's also um, developing these relationships with these compounds. And I've never done Kratom. um, And as far as opiates go, I've obviously taken opiates and I've taken pain pills that were, you know, from yeah, it, surgeries and things like that. Nothing ever, like I've never been addicted or anything like that. I think I've maybe done it recreationally a few times too. Um, it's not my favorite. It's not a, it's not a great feeling in my opinion. I don't know. I'm not a big alcohol guy either. You know, like I'll drink a beer here or there with like a nice dinner or something like that, but I'm not out there drinking to get buzzed. I don't like that feeling either. So could just be me personally. I don't really understand the whole alcohol and um, opiate feeling. That like the opiate feeling is kind of like this like warm, fuzzy, um, you know, like comfortable kind of a feeling. But it's it's kind of um, unnerving to me in some way. I don't know how to explain it, but that's just the the feelings that I used to get. Um, and. <sighs> I don't know what the answer is. So you were asking about like uh, legalization and stuff before. I don't know what the answer is to like the opioid crisis. I know uh, it's prevalent here in the U.S., obviously. Um, And then you're right. You know, you see like Portugal and they decriminalize everything and then have great success with these programs. And um, I don't know if that can be implemented the u.s is obviously a lot bigger than portugal um but i again i think it's this thing where we have 
it's not just an opiate thing. It's also like a homeless issue as well. Um, some of it's mental illness, some of it's drug addiction, some of it, maybe both. And then you also, um, so it's like, I don't know what the solution is to that. Um, that's a whole separate thing. I can say that taking the stigma away from it and, um, I think that's the thinking behind decriminalizing everything is like, if you take the stigma away from it, it loses its power in terms of making people feel bad about themselves. And if less people feel bad about themselves, maybe less people will take these substances. I don't know if that uh, would work or not. I, you know, I just, I've looked at these studies and stuff. I just, I, I look, I have always me and my cousin, you know, my co-host and, close group of friends we were never into like the harder stuff we just you know if it grew from the you know cannabis and traditional psychedelics maybe some exotic psychedelics here and there um but yeah we were never into like i mean i i did cocaine in my mid-20s but it was never um fun it was always like go out to the bar and party with my friends when i was younger and um i think it's just a money waster um and you don't really get anything out of it. There's no like insights or profound ideas or anything like that. So I've always tried to stay away from the harder stuff. Um, so like, I, I don't love the opiate feeling. Cocaine is just very overrated. Um, yeah, like anything tropanes, not a fan. DXM, there's a lot of unpleasant psychoactive compounds to me that some people love some people like some people are functional some people you know so that's why maybe i think decriminalization decriminalization is the answer because some people respond better to some of these things and i mean even hamilton morris on hamilton's pharmacopoeia talks about this and this is an important thing to him that you don't make any drug illegal or you don't like even as many people have is died from fentanyl there are some people that actually need it for pain you know and so if you um you know put a stigma on that so it's like all these drugs that have people in some way or maybe some of them have therapeutic effects that we don't fully understand um so uh maybe by decriminalizing them you can look at these things deeper and do more studies and understand if there's certain ways you know they just did um they just created a compound from ibogaine. I want to call it say it's called tabernathalog or something along those lines where it's the ibogaine uh, it, it's part I think it's some alkaloids or compounds from ibogaine uh that are non-psychoactive that still help people um with, you know, the addiction stuff. So that's been kind of controversial in terms of some people would argue that the psychoactive or mystical experience is the one that produces this profound change or effect or reset or whatever. Well, they're saying they created this compound that has no psychoactive compounds in it, but it's part of the alkaloids and it does help people. So I think my personal philosophy with all this is just the more options, the better. So we're all different. We all might have similar makeups and physiological mechanisms, but at the end of the day, we are all different and different things work for different people based on their world views and experiences and all sorts of different, you know, things. True. I also see like a correlation between, you know, our mental states and as to what kind of substances we're attracted to. So when you said that, you know, opioids sort of have these warm, fuzzy feeling, 
you know, I think it's it's in the popular culture, you call anything which is um, calming. So we could say a class of drugs like benzodiazepines and like opioids as downers. And then, you know, you have stimulants like Adderall and stuff like that, which are the uppers, you know. And so it's very, you know, kind of interesting to see how a certain person, so let's say if a person is very hyperactive in general, they would be more inclined to using, you know, Adderall because just because it, you know, it matches with their state of mind and like how they are as a person. And then you see, you know, a certain person who is very calm in general and they would be very drawn towards benzos and like opioids, which is very interesting again, because in, in those cases, how do you, if you were to treat a certain psychopathology, how would you go about doing it? Because it would be, that you, if this calm person is also anxious most of the times, and he goes to a psychiatrist and he says that you know I'm also anxious, and then they prescribe him you know benzodiazepines, which is something that he's already very attracted towards, and then you know addiction comes in because it, if you if you've noticed you know Jordan Peterson was you know admitted into a, a hospital for benzo addiction, and then he was you know i feel like he was clever enough to recognize that it's not good to be on these benzos after one year but i feel like there's a lot of people out there you know who've been using these you know substances throughout their lives at this point and now if they stop it they would you know abruptly stopping it would definitely mean you know some kind of deadly experience for them because it's you're you know, your body is so used to these compounds and now that you've stopped it, you know, it's definitely going to have a very bizarre or very, you know, strong reaction to that particular, you know, stimulus. And so what do you think about, you know, all these different things that, you know, people would, people with, you know, certain psychopathologies, you know, getting prescribed a certain thing and then they, you know, go down the addiction road and, sometimes it even, you know, delegitimizes, you know, how people who actually ben benefit from benzos, you know, they, they are put in a different bad light, we can say. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you bring up benzos and benzos, I think benzos and alcohol are the ones that you cannot stop. Um, you can't have a big drop off, meaning you can't have a high tolerance and then just stop taking them. You're right. You, I think some people, or you can die uh, that way. So, um, I personally, in my life, uh, since I do have OCD, was prescribed Xanax many times. Um, I never liked it uh, personally, and it just never helped me. What it would do is, let's say you're having an intense panic attack or something like that. It might be good to kind of. Uh, calm you down like as you mentioned or level you out uh, but it's just like a band-aid it's I, I would correlate it to putting like a band-aid on some like uh, huge gouge on your body you know it's like this like massive problem that you're just putting this like little bandage on and it's not really doing much it's just kind of helping you temporarily so I never like doing it because I would take it get tired fall asleep and then wake up the next day and I still have to deal with the same problems I had yesterday so um, in terms of that I'm not a fan but I do know it helps some people and it, if you have bad panic attacks and stuff like that you know obviously it might help you um, but I think that there's other ways to do it too you know like we've talked about like cognitive behavioral therapy CBT um, 
And you actually mentioned uh, something that I found very interesting, which is how would you treat somebody that was um, calm but had really bad anxiety? And actually, that's me. That describes me. I mean, if you were to see me normally, you wouldn't know that there was like a storm brewing upstairs in my mind, you know? So, um, you know, I think certain people might be able to tell, like my wife's pretty keen on when I'm starting to feel that way or seems like I'm going down that, that path. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't know. So I think that I'm an interesting case in that regard too. So I don't necessarily think that, um, you mentioned these drugs and how they kind of people take what they kind of are like. And it's interesting because I'm very laid back. I've always been laid back and calm and, um, maybe a little too laid back, you know? Uh, but I've never liked the layback stuff, you know, other than maybe cannabis, but cannabis doesn't really always do that to me. Um, I kind of have a different relationship with cannabis. So like these people that are like, I can't get off the couch or I eat all this food. Like I don't feel like eating at all when I'm, uh, when I smoke or when I vape or whatever. So I think these compounds just hit people differently. And I think that, um, the whole point about the calm and, and how would you, I don't know what the answer is to that. Cause I've, that's me. So I've been trying to figure that riddle out. Like what's this. And I think that obviously, like I said, psilocybin has been super helpful, uh, resets the mind, anything that can create neuroplasticity, uh, whether it be these occasional psychedelic resets or, um, you know, meditation or things that, you know, kind of get you out of your normal day-to-day -day consciousness and kind of help you rewire. And, um, I think what it is, is, and I've talked about this before, I'm not, you know, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything like that, but I do have OCD and I do understand the mind and I've read tons of books and watched all the latest research and know all the papers and everything. And I can say, uh, with a degree of certainty that I feel like what OCD is, is these bad thought loops or way of thinking. It's almost like a bad habit that you create in your mind that gets embedded. Um, so it becomes like a mechanism. Um, and then everything gets filtered through that. Um, and you kind of just live your life based off of that. So that's what I think is going on. Um, as opposed to, let's say, some sort of... Um, you know, I, uh, like endogenous imbalance or something like that. I don't know if that, that was speculation for years. I don't know if that's still, uh, what's going on, but I can, I can say personally that I've been on all those, you know, SSRIs or whatever they are, um, all the different anti, uh, anxieties and you mentioned benzos. I've tried everything and, um, again, it's not like a silver bullet. So even people, they prescribe those to, they obviously always recommend therapy as well. So, I mean, is it the, the, the thing, you know, is it the compounds? Is it the therapy? Is it a combination of both? I think that, uh, the interesting thing to me about the psychedelics with, um, when it comes to this topic is that, uh, they play off of traditional psychedelics like psilocybin and you know, your traditional ones will play off of your 5-HT2A receptors, your serotonin receptors. And um, they're just adding like these slight variations to that. So it's playing off of your natural chemistry in a way that's, that's, that's why I think I gravitate towards that more is that we are organic, uh, we're, we're, you know, um, 
we're organisms obviously that have been evolved on this earth and so have mushrooms and plants and um i think we're closer to plants uh than or we're, we're closer to fungus or fungi uh than fungi is to plants i believe evolution i think 65 million years or 650 million years ago uh the split off happened and i think w uh animals are closer to fungi than fungi is to plants so um you look at these relationships between uh, these compounds and they've been there for a while and um, I don't see why we've been inventing all these like weird variations when really uh, we're probably built or we are built with all of our receptors to um, experience these things true like when you talked about you know I've been thinking about this thing where people you know say that if you use cannabis, you know, it puts certain people on couches and like they're not able to function. But then we also see these people who are, let's say, regular quote unquote stoners and they're able to function properly in their life. Like I've I've encountered people who I would categorize as high functioning stoners where they don't, you know, where cannabis necessarily doesn't have that calming euphoric effect to that extent that it would put you on a couch or something for some time i've seen people you know walk around smoking and like they're you know they're on their they're doing their own thing you know they're going about their daily lives and it's not at all affecting anything but then i see people who would do it recreationally in the sense that very occasionally i think would be a better word so they do it occasionally because they cannot do it you know all the time because it would not be good for them and also, like one of the things I was thinking is that you have OCD. Have you tried um, ever tried LSD? Because LSD puts you in these loop thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting if you know it heightens OCD in any way, or if it has any different effect, or if it's very subjective. It differs from person to person. Whether they would you know go into these you know loop thoughts when you're on LSD. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I done LSD um, a decent amount in my younger years I haven't really done it at all probably 10-15 years um, but you're right and I didn't like it for that reason um, I think that it was too heady for me um, there's something that happens with psilocybin where you can feel it coursing through your whole body like you can feel um you feel, I don't even know how to explain it. It just feels like your body and your mind are all at home. Um, with LSD, it just felt like very in my own head, um, very perception distorting, but not, look, it wasn't unpleasant. I remember the first time I did it was with one of my buddies and we watched Pink Floyd's The Wall, which was a mistake um, because the psychological like war stuff associated with it. Uh, and I love Pink Floyd and I love The Wall, but those, the combination of LSD and that, I think I was probably like 18 or 19 at the time. Um, and I, it just, I don't know. And then I've done it other times at like concerts and festivals and stuff. And I had a better time. I mean, it was fun. Um, it was fun when we watched the wall. Like I said, it's just, you're in your head more and I'm, I'm trying to get away from that, if that makes sense. So I think that that's what the psilocybin does. It kind of releases you of that. And you're able to free, like for me, since I have OCD, I feel like I'm, I have certain parameters in my mind that I'm kind of, um, you know, cornered in, if you will, and certain certain things. And I think that 
what psilocybin does is allows me to break free of that and think freer. Um, and I think I have some of my most creative thoughts too. I think that I recently had experience where I was shown that when you're in that realm, it's the realm of, of, you know, your imagination or that's what your imagination is. And, um, when you experience these things, you're experiencing this full creativity and imagination realm. Um, so I, I look at it like that. So, I, um, when I have these experiences, which are not often anymore, in my older years now, I mean, I'm not that old, but I mean, I'm, I'm old enough where I don't need to be going looking for any psychedelics or, you know, asking around that kind of a thing. And at this point, if things happen or pop up or whatever, cool, I'm just not out there searching. So, um, and that's why I haven't tried DMT because it's kind of a relatively newer craze in terms of being very available out there. So, um, I think that psychedelics or at least psilocybin for me has always been the key like i just mentioned because it just breaks you free from the monotonous or um caged thinking of day-to-day consciousness i've also like been observing this one thing which i'm very you know keen on knowing as to why it happens but have you ever like so when you have these high high dose let's say high dose psychedelic experiences so one way to put it would be, you know, maybe five grams of cubenses or uh, 500 micrograms of LSD, something like that. And then when you read descriptions of people going through a DMT trip and then they describe, you know, these tunnels, fractals and stuff. So I had this experience, this high dose LSD experience last year where I, you know, near to 500 micrograms, where I saw like I had three hours or four hours where I was just lying down and the ceiling was acting like a green screen almost. And I was having, you know, these full-blown open-eye visuals. But these visuals were so intense that it gave me a feeling that maybe this is what it feels like to enter the interior. Because, you know, I, I was seeing all these fractals and spirals and tunnels, which is something that, you know, people definitely describe, at least, you know, after they say that they take the second hit or whatever of the mm-hmm. thing. And... I don't know, like, uh, I feel like maybe there's a correlation between higher, you know, LSD and psilocybin trips with the DMT realm, whether if it's a possibility that if someone was to take a considerably, you know, potent mushroom dose or, you know, higher LSD micro doses or whatever, and then they would, you know, have these intense, profound experiences very similar to DMT. So what if, you know, you can reach those states with these certain compounds without taking DMT, which is very interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm pretty sure uh, psilocin or psilocin, um, which is what psilocybin breaks down to in your gut, um, is only one molecule away from DMT. So um, you're, you're right in the sense, I think that there are a little there are some crossovers and I know that we've talked to a lot of people that, I mean, I've taken the most psilocybin I've ever taken is 10 dried grams, which is a lot. I mean, that's most people think an eighth is a lot. I took a, a quarter plus an eighth pretty much. And, um, everything kind of dissolved. And then there was just this pattern that kind of spread it out across everything. Uh, and I was in the forest and it was just a beautiful experience. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. Um, I again, I can't, I can't know because I've never experienced DMT, and everybody says it is this like next level thing that happens. But you're, I mean, I have gone very deep on other things where, yeah, you, you do see all these fractals, you do see hyperspace. Um, you know, I've seen crazy stuff on psilocybin and MDMA combinations when I've done those two together. I've seen. Um, you know, I've done salvia uh, when I was younger uh, more than a few times, and that was very, very short, but very, very intense as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, I think you can tap into that. And we've had people on the show like uh, Jack, who runs the Trip Whip channel, um, and other people that have had experiences that will tell you, yeah, there is some similarities and there are things that these entities or machine elves people have seen them on other psychedelics and not just dmt um i mean i've seen weird stuff meditating too that i've seen in psychedelic realms so i mean it's not i think it just has to do with your inner space or your um your inner self um and i think that that that's why people you know like it's I think there's a lot of people in the esoteric traditions or the you see these like occult psychedelic um, forms and stuff like that. Like a lot of people's goal is to not take psychedelics, but achieve those states of consciousness via meditation, via knowledge, plus the meditation via, you know, some people think Kundalini activates, you know, some aspects of that. Other people, you know, different forms of med meditation, yoga, things that kind of you know, even types of dancing, you know, there's different, um, different things that alter these altered states. So, um, I think even the, uh, Aborigines have this thing called dream time where they do this, this dance and they, it's like a form of meditation and tradition. And, um, uh, yeah, I th look, there's a lot of things out there that can alter your consciousness. And I think that again, my hypothesis, if I were to have one based on everything so far, I think psychedelics and altered states, whether it's meditation or prayer or whatever you want to call it, um, are at the root of a lot of this thinking beyond the material or beyond the uh, senses, if you will. True. I feel like just, you know, with these, for, so what I've been thinking these days about, you know, the higher states is that if if at all there is a correlation indeed it would be very interesting that you know if we could run certain researches on it and see you know as to how it connects because you know like how terence mckenna said that you only need five grams of really good mushrooms and a dark room to have a really good out of you know the world psilocybin experience and it's very interesting that you said you know you mix psilocybin with MDMA because I've heard of people using LSD and MDMA together and they call it uh, candy flipping. Yeah. And you know, yeah, there's the hippie flipping too. Um, yeah. It's, it's um, I've again, I haven't done LSD in a long time, but I, mean, I, I liked the combination of psilocybin and MDMA. Um, when you look at, I mean, MDMA is kind of like, a, um, some people don't even really, categorize it as a psychedelic i do i've definitely had closed eye and open-eyed visuals i mean i took a decent amount of pure mdma uh probably a few years back and i saw jellyfish 
floating around in my peripherals and closed eye and open eye visuals I've seen uh, on a camping trip. I the the MDMA and psilocybin one. I saw this translucent gray type being that was one of the external uh, entities I experienced, um, and it's just very weird. It's just a very weird thing. And look, our minds play tricks on us too. So it's, I always think about these things and I try to get through it because I don't want to waste time with like, not like when I research things, I don't want to waste time with nonsense. But even when I like think about my own experiences and things like that, I want to rule out, um, things that I think were just manifestations of whatever the case may be. But I have had some truly weird things that I can't explain on, psychedelics i had like a couple weird sleep paralysis things after a long weekend of psychedelic use um so i've had a lot of weird things happen that i can't really account for that um have been integral and to me looking into things that have led to other things you know kind of like synchronicity type stuff um if you will um but yeah it's just um we live in such a (laughs) It's just so weird that we're alive. Like you and I are just having this weird conversation about, uh, you know, the things that can change the way we think about things. Um, And we're talking through this machine and we're live, living, breathing magic. I think life is just so mysterious in itself. And um, lately that's kind of where I've been at on things is just uh, I love a lot of the mystical things and anecdotal things. Um, But I also, you know love the basic things too just like i said just thinking about like just oh today i'm alive i'm i'm thinking about weird stuff what is going on like what is the point of is there a point if there's no point then i don't see why any of this is plausible especially if you look at like evolution evolution does have some sort of a purpose it's to stay alive right so or for the organism to stay alive um, so if it's leading towards that, there's got to be some sort of maybe mechanism beyond our knowing, you know, of that. So it's like even if you take the materialistic route or um, empirical route on things, you can still get to a place where it's there's so many unknown things. You can't really, you know, find the answers. It, it'll never happen in anybody's lifetimes. The universe will die before anybody knows anything. And at that point, the most that person knows will still not know nearly as enough or nearly enough true so like throughout the 173 episodes that you've done is has there ever been any you know fragment of information that has just come out through you know conversations that you found most bizarre or you know interesting in general um trying to think yeah so I'd say a lot of the psychedelic stuff, I didn't realize how many of these like archetypal things are part of the experience, like yawns. People get the, they're called the yawns on psilocybin. You do this thing where you yawn and when you yawn, it like kind of takes you to this like peak feeling um, or plateau feeling. Um, And um, like we did this episode called like the Truman Show effect where you feel like everybody's watching you or it's almost like you're in some sort of solipsistic simulation universe where you're the only thing that matters or uh, everything else is fake or, you know, pretend or whatever. Uh, We've done weird stuff like that. I'm just trying to think. We did a recent episode on 
the Codex Gigas, which is uh, known as the Devil's Bible. It's not like anything devilish or demonic or anything like that. It's actually just a Bible that has the first ever depiction of the devil like on one of the pages. And the book's huge. I mean, it's like 165 pounds. It is the largest book uh, in history. Um, and the thing, when I saw the picture of the devil, I go, oh, that's a psychedelic entity. And the guy that wrote it was a hermeticist um, from like, I want to say the 13th century, 12th century. I got to have to look it up again. But, um, and hermetic traditions and occult traditions have always been associated with psychedelic use. So um, this idea of the devil, I don't believe that there's a hell or some sort of you know, demon. These, these are all human inventions. These are all systems of control. Um, whether it was intended for good use to keep people to do moral things or whatever the case may be, I don't know. But um, I think it's a human invention. Now, I think a real possibility is your consciousness could survive. Maybe that's what people experience when, you know, near death, or maybe that's what the Egyptians were talking about, or um, you know, there's a lot the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, all these different texts, you know, that could be what they're talking about is your consciousness or your essence or this ba or, you know, your, uh, your ka. Um, and that surviving past, you know, and, and okay, so even if you look at the materialistic aspect of science, like, uh, you know, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So you're, energy goes somewhere when you die it's just transferred into some other form so what happens exactly i nobody knows i mean if anybody tells you they know they they don't i mean even near death people is sure some of them are and actually my mom is one of those my mom was dead for three minutes giving birth to one of my sisters and actually we were going to maybe do some sort of near death documentary at some point and then this whole virus thing happens so kind of put a damp uh damper on any sort of travel but um, I guess my point is, is with the whole consciousness thing, I think it's a very real possibility through everything you were talking about people we've talked to and everything, um, that there's a reasonable explanation for things, but they could still be mystical, but, um, nobody has the answers, not even the people claiming to have all the answers. So if we live in this mysterious world where, um, magical things do happen from time to time. I have no reason to doubt that there is some sort of purpose, maybe even a, an objective purpose. Um, I guess that's where I'm at right now. I don't, I just don't see a point to any of this. And so again, there's philosophers and the new atheists and all these people that would argue this is just an illusion of self and, um, you know, none of this means anything. And like, you you know, Richard Dawkins is selfish gene and all this stuff. And um, those are all great and wonderful. And we need science and we need evolutionary science and stuff like that. But I don't, based on my personal experiences, I don't believe that to just be it or all. Um, and at very least, let's say these entities are internal manifestations or your subconscious or whatever the case may be. I think it's still super profound and it could inform um, and help us get to the next level. And who's not to say that there'll be even more questions once we get to this next level of understanding or paradigm shift or whatever. True. I feel like your podcast definitely does a very, really good job of, you know, accumulating all these very in intricate knowledge that people can look into. And 
thank you for you know doing this podcast with me today. It's been a pleasure. No, this is awesome. Anytime. And uh, maybe we'll get you on our podcast at some point and uh, continue this conversation. If I could just plug one thing to um, obviously check out our podcast, Mind Escape. You can go to mindescapepodcast.com. Uh, we're on all platforms. We also do our show live on YouTube. Uh, but the thing that I've been working on recently, it's called Indra's Web. Um, so Indra's Web, if you go to I-N-D-R-A-S uh, org, it's a platform we created to have all these kinds of discussions and visionary thinking and outside the box thinking. And the, it's, it's an app that we created. It's not in the app store yet. We're working on that. But it, the platform is live online and uh, you can set up a profile. Uh, the whole point is to connect open minds. So via ancient civilizations, psychedelics, UFOs, consciousness, esoteric traditions, stuff like that. Um, we have all those topics on there. And um, yeah, it's the whole goal is to bring people together. There's a lot of, um, you know, people trying to separate people out there and divisiveness and uh, misleading things and people putting nonsense out there. We're going to try and create um, this or cultivate this platform that has open mindedness, but not craziness, if that makes sense. So we want, um, yeah, we want to just create this like culture of kind of like how you and I had this conversation. And I think that if more of these conversations are had, I think that the world would be a lot better of a place. Definitely, definitely. I will actually join this thing because I just saw the video on it, the intro's web episode. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we just did an episode on it with uh, my buddy who is the co-creator. Yes, I would definitely join and I would definitely also encourage people to join because, as you said, conversations like this are almost you know essential at this point for any kind of harmonious existence in general so, and we don't collect data so don't worry you don't have to worry about that we're not collecting data this is this is a good thing this is just a passion thing that you know at some point we might have a patreon connected to it but just right now it's just a passion thing to connect people and ideas and that kind of a thing no, it's, it's a definitely a very good initiative. I see extreme value in it. So I would definitely join in. I would encourage everyone to join in too. So thank you for doing this. Um, it's been a pleasure. No, thank you. And uh, like I said, anytime. And uh, like I said, we'll get you on our podcast at some point here in the future. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And you've done a great job so far with all your episodes. And uh, just keep doing it. And I think that, you know, by the time you get to 173 or 174, I think, you know, you'll have a, a whole body of work where you'll have, a, um, you'll know, I think, you'll, you'll know, you'll have a better idea of what you think about the universe, I think, at that point. And I think that um, you're already super intelligent, so just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Like, that's definitely the vision. I see a lot of value in podcasting in general, just because, you know, how much information you gain, you know, just going, ascending from one episode to the other. So that's definitely the aim and the interest also lies there. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Have a nice night. <laughs>